I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How's it going today? It's going pretty well. How about you? I'm really excited for today. Yes. Today, we are talking to Elizabeth Sylvia about her first book, None But Witches, Poems on Shakespeare's Women. Elizabeth is the winner of the fifth annual Three Mile Harbor Poetry Prize. She lives in Mattapawasset, Massachusetts, and teaches high school English in Bourne. Her poetry has been published in a wide range of literary journals, including Salamander, Pleiades, Slipstream, and Crab Creek Review. 
None But Witches, Poems on Shakespeare's Women, began as a project to read all of the Bard's plays in one year. It is her first book. None But Witches, Poems on Shakespeare's Women is a stunning debut collection by Elizabeth Sylvia, winner of the fifth annual Three Mile Harbor Poetry Prize. Although Sylvia started off accepting the truism that Shakespeare was remarkable for the depth of his female characters, she found herself surmising that the women had a lot more to say than they were given. Sometimes sympathetic, frequently enraged, Sylvia began to write to them, for them, as them. The poems ultimately going into this richly textured collection that looks at the plays themselves, at the poet's own life as a woman, and at women's continuing efforts to take the stage in the contemporary world. And now, here is our conversation with Elizabeth Sylvia. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. First things first, we ask all of our guests, what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Well, like a lot of people, if I look all the way back, I'm going to have to say freshman year English Romeo and Juliet was my first technical experience with Shakespeare. I think I feel like every high school student in America can relate to that. But I think I have two much more formative experiences. One, when I was 15, I played Celia in a local theater, As You Like It, and that was just awesome. I mean, it wasn't a high school production. It was a, you know, it was local um, theater people from, of all different ages, and it was a wonderful production, which I remember a lot. And I had my picture in the paper, which was a big deal. <laughs> and also when I was in high school, I had a wonderful English teacher named Dan Sharkovitz, who has passed on who absolutely loved Shakespeare. And he took our class on a week-long trip to London to see Shakespeare plays at the RSC. We saw Midsummer Night's Dream, and we saw um, Romeo and Juliet, and we, I think we saw Hamlet too. It seems amazing that they would have been having all three of those on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I might be wrong, but that was a really formative experience because the RSC was one of those places that was really putting on modern Shakespeare back in the early 90s, before that had become as much of a trend as it is now. And so to see to see this kind of like punk rock Midsummer Night's Dream when you're 15 years old was like mind blowing. That's incredible. And both Courtney and I, our jaws just drop. <laughs> a week long in London. <laughs> in like slight like envy. There's a little bit of envy because that sounds absolutely incredible. And how could that not be a truly formative experience with Shakespeare? Like what an incredible teacher to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if you just want to know how even more amazing that it was, our teacher took us to do a chat with Mark Rylance. Well, we can end this interview now because I don't know how <laughs> we're going to top that. <laughs> you know, who was still fairly young at that point, but he, of course, he's gone on to have such an amazing Shakespeare career. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And then, um, you know, looking forward to today, you've published your first book, None But Witches, mm -hmm. and it features poems inspired by the women of Shakespeare. How did this idea of writing to, for, and as these women come to you? The project did not start as that idea. The project started as a, as a New Year's resolution in 2018. I decided that I was going to read all of Shakespeare's plays in one year. I felt like I had read a lot of the plays many times, but I hadn't read all of them. Mm -hmm. And 
I was also, when I'm looking back on it, I felt, I think I was feeling frustrated with what I had been reading and I wanted a really meaty project and something that was really going to consume me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read all of Shakespeare's plays this year. And that was really all it started as. And then when I got to Titus Andronicus, because I was reading them in chronological order, Mm -hmm. I have an Oxford complete Shakespeare. So I started at the beginning and just started running through. And I got to Titus Andronicus and I was like, I can't take this anymore. (laughs) Slammed the book shut Mm. and said, I have things to say about this. And so my, the first poem that I wrote was, was about Lavinia and Titus Andronicus. And then I was, and so, you know, I was so kind of engaged with my experience of reading the plays and when you're reading them back to back, you become so much more attuned to the tropes that repeat over and over again than I had mm-hmm. ever been before. Like literally how many young women in Shakespeare either have to die or have a parent die just because they decided to marry somebody that their parents didn't approve of. It like mm-hmm. <laughs> play after play after play. If you marry somebody your parents didn't want you to marry, either you die or they die. Mm-hmm. Right. And that wasn't something I had never, ever really noticed before. But once I was in this immersive experience, I started to notice all of these things. And and so I just started writing to the individual plays as I was reading them. It was kind of like a letters to Shakespeare about how I was frustrated or upset or I felt like he had missed a moment. Or um, And at some point, I thought to myself, oh, I have like 30 poems here. This is enough to make a book. And you should go back and go through all of the plays and write something about every single one of them. And I did that. And it took me about two and a half years to read and write all of the poems. The other thing that was happening that when I look back, it seems really obvious how influenced the book was by kind of living through the Me Too movement at the same time, Mm -hmm. which already feels like it happened a long time ago. But in 2018 was when there was so much discourse about the ways in which women, even powerful women, are so are were so sidelined and and compromised by their experiences with men. So while I was reading all of Shakespeare's plays, at the same time, I was getting all of this news about women coming out and saying, you know, you look at me and you see me as being so powerful, but you don't understand what's been happening to me behind the scenes. Mm. And now I see that that is really present in the book as well, although I wasn't consciously thinking about it at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something that stood out to me um, that I connected was as you were reading through these chronologically, you did not get far in the Shakespeare chronology if uh, by Titus, this inspiration took hold. Because Titus is such an early work, so to see these things repeat, especially over the early works, and just, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of very baked in ideas about what it is to be a woman in society in early modern England. We've talked about these things on our show before, and he doesn't really start, he doesn't really do anything new or fresh with women for a while. Mm -hmm. And he kind of sticks to these archetypes. And speaking of archetypes, Your book is divided into thematic sections that connect the poems to specific archetypes from Shakespeare. Can you tell our listeners about these archetypes and how you landed on them as a way to organize this collection of poetry? The four sections of the book are queens, daughters, lovers, and witches. And 
they reflect for me the sort of three ways that you see female characters in Shakespeare trying to take power and ultimately end with the archetype of the witch, which, as you know, there actually aren't very many real witches in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm, And I I think there's a case to be made that we're not entirely sure if Macbeth's witches are even female. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the witch to me is kind of the ultimate goal of all female characters in Shakespeare in that it is an identity that is not dependent on a on relationship to a male character. So while queens would seem to have a lot of sort of external power, their power is so dependent on their male relationships and to and of course a daughter's power is completely dependent on male relationships and then the relationship of a lover can be somewhat more equal and then ultimately the witch relationship is one of owning your own power and not being responsible and i definitely think there are female characters in shakespeare like lady macbeth who is ultimately very very witchy in her complete self-possession mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of some of these characters, were there any characters that you found easier to write to, for, as than others? I think that probably my favorite character who, prior to this project, I had not read the plays in which she was present is Queen Margaret, who is part of the Henry VI plays. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. At this point, I, can I side note and say at Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island right now, they're doing a play called By the Queen by Whitney White, which is a reimagining of Margaret's life. And it's unbelievable. So I went to see it a couple weeks ago and I was like, this is amazing. And she's amazing. And I love how absolutely shameless she is. I love how shameless she is when she is carrying around Suffolk's head and not caring that anybody (laughs) sees that. I love how angry she is when she's got that handkerchief full of blood. You know, I, I think she's just like such a great character, even though, you know, ultimately she doesn't really achieve any of her goals. So she was my favorite character to write about because I felt like she had a lot of complexity. And although she comes to the same kind of end that a lot of Queens come to, she, in the time that she's active, she really takes the male characters to task in a very strong way, really consistently. Mm-hmm. So she was, she was my favorite. And then some of my other favorites are people who I feel like don't actually exist on the page. So in Comedy of Errors, for example, Antiphilus is married to a kitchen maid named Nell, who never mm-hmm. appears, but they spend two entire pages making fun of how she looks and you know i i love nell i want nell nell's got something going on because she you know she hooked antiphilus's twin so you know i want to imagine her as a character who really is not defined by the way other people see her but brings her own really intense presence to the to the stage even though she's never never actually on stage she's like one of those moons that has its own gravity, but she's mm-hmm. off stage. I love that too, because that makes me think of Rosalind and how Rosalind is Romeo's infatuation for so much of the beginning of the play, and we don't see her. And like, wh- who are these women and what do they mean? Like, and can they have identity outside of the pages of text? Which, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
or one of your poems that like really struck me, resonated with me, is for the Welsh woman in Henry Four Part One. And that is such an interesting character because there she is given zero written lines. It just says the lady speaks in Welsh, the lady sings in Welsh. And it functions in the scene as like this extended joke about the Welsh language that doesn't land very well today. But she's just this counterpoint for Lady Percy, who uh, with Hotspur has this excellent some one of the like better relationships we see in Shakespeare. And the Welsh woman is married to someone who she actually cannot communicate with. Mm-hmm. So I just want to bring that up as another example of these women that you give voice to mm-hmm. um, who don't exist as full characters in Shakespeare's stories. I, I'm i glad you brought that. I actually really love that poem too. It's one of my favorites mm-hmm. in the book. And I have always found that such an unusual scene because I always wonder, how did they play this in Shakespeare's time? Because you do definitely get the sense that whoever was playing Lady Mortimer is going blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, her father is talking about how moving it is and she's crying and they seem Mm -hmm. to have some kind of relationship that transcends language. So how can it be both a kind of mean joke about the weak culture of the Welsh and also this like really moving departure scene? I don't know how you can play it both ways, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I have always wondered that about that scene because I I feel sad for her in that scene. Yeah. Yeah, she's quite a in that in that scene she's quite a tragic figure to Lady Percy who's able to say basically like, this is just part of his work. This is what he does. And so she's also a, like she's a very fascinating compelling character who we just don't know anything about. And it's it's one of my favorites. So, I just wanted to also let you know that. <laughs> I read aloud to my husband. I was like, I got to read this to you. When people think of Shakespeare and poetry, they probably, maybe, think of the sonnets. Can you explain, for people who may be more unfamiliar with poetry, the style and form of poetry you write in and how it compares and contrasts to Shakespearean sonnets, for example? Well, what I will say is most of my book is in free verse. So most of it is not rhyming and it is not following a pre-existing form. And I did make a choice to do that at the beginning of the writing, because I felt that trying to write sonnets about Shakespeare felt that it would be too reductive, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to be able to out Shakespeare Shakespeare. And that is how it's going to sound if I try to write sonnets <laughs> uh, responding to his plays. So I have a couple of poems that use received forms like a villanelle or there's a chazal. Mm-hmm. But most of them are, are free verse. And again, I don't, you know, I did that deliberately. But I will also say at the same time that the experience of reading all of these Shakespeare plays back to back did influence my language use a lot while I was writing. That the intensity of language and the richness and the use of words in unusual ways and a little bit maybe even the syntax. I think are threaded all the way through the different poems. I was actually thinking to myself the other day that I might go back and read all of the plays again because I loved how easy it felt to conjure this kind of dense language at the time that I was reading them. I mean, I agree. I think that it's, I think it'd be really fun to go 
go through your book Mm -hmm. and look at the poem for plays that we are specifically working on or as I work on plays in other areas of my life and read what you wrote that connects to this play and the connections that you made. That's something that I look forward to Mm -hmm. returning to this collection for in the future. Yeah. Um, And I have to say that my goal this year is to finish the complete works. And this fell into my lap at the correct time as I go through each and see how you interpret these works. So this is also a project for me this year. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot. I think there's a lot of people out there that I'm aware of who have set this reading the complete works as a reading goal for themselves, Mm -hmm. some of whom maybe listen to this podcast. And I think that this is just a really fantastic companion piece for each work as they go through it, Mm -hmm. like a little like end cap on Mm -hmm. a reading experience or to break up the process of reading through all of the plays, a palate cleanser, potentially. Yes. Or maybe if you start to get really frustrated with Shakespeare, you would know that I too had moments of being Mm -hmm. very, very angry at him. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) But in the end, I have to say, I went through this dark period where I was like, Shakespeare, I'm so sick of you. I'm so sick of you killing every good woman in your plays. But by the end, I had kind of come out on the other side. And there's a special kind of poem called a palinode in which you apologize Mm -hmm. for something you've complained about in a poem before. And I wrote a palinode in None But Witches about how I had changed my mind by the time I got to the end of the plays that I actually felt like the strength that the female characters carried through, despite everything that he threw at them, really resonated with me. And their refusal to their refusal to kind of sit down on their trauma and stop there and say, well, I can't go on anymore Uh is really Mm -hmm. moving Mm -hmm. to me. Ultimately, like every single woman has a, has horrible things happen to her and she just gets up and keeps going towards what she wants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way that the poems are arranged. The palinode comes at such a nice pivot in the work as well. So it's like it, yeah, I could go on, but it is like a really nice, Um, shift for the reader as well Mm -hmm. to consider and think about. In addition to being an award-winning poet, congratulations, by the way, (laughs) you are also a high school English teacher. For our our listeners, do you teach Shakespeare? I am primarily a teacher of American literature, so Mm -hmm. I don't teach a lot of Shakespeare, but I do teach advanced placement literature a class I'm guessing many of your listeners took because that's where a lot of people get their first real understanding of Shakespeare. And Mm -hmm. I have taught various Shakespeare plays during my tenure in that class. Right now, the play that that I typically teach is King Lear, which I've been teaching Mm -hmm. for about four years. Mm -hmm. And King Lear is a play that kids really relate to. I was thinking about this earlier today. First of all, it has a lot of action in it. So that's appealing. You know, Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, who can, who can, who wants to stop reading after Gloucester gets his eyes gouged out? Like, you gotta (laughs) keep going after that. But I also think that one of the things that's appealing about King Lear to young people is that while there are a lot of parents and children in Shakespeare, I feel like Lear is the play that most broadly exposes the flawed parent Mm. Mm -hmm. that that part of growing up where you start to realize that this person who loomed large in your youth and childhood is actually 
not great. And I don't think that happens in very many other plays, even when maybe mm-hmm. the audience recognizes the limitations of, say, Henry Bolingbroke. But I don't know that Hal ever does, right? Like he Mm -hmm. sees his father as someone really worthy of respect. And in general, I think that's true throughout most of Shakespeare. But in Lear, you really see children who who are reckoning with the toppling of an idol. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of teenagers, that's something that they go through when they start to realize that their parents are maybe petty and (laughs) self-involved and are living their own psychodramas through their children. And Lear's also three daughters, daughters without a mother as well, which I always think is very fascinating about Lear. And you do write in your book of that as well. So I wonder, what does that look like in a classroom, that discussion your, your students have? About, yeah, well, you know, this year a student raised a great question that I had never thought of before. He said, you know, what if Cordelia had just lied? Everything would have been better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, that's such a great perspective on this, because so often we consider honesty to be this, you know, ultimate value. And like, yes, we can't stand with Reagan and Goneril at the end of their path. But at the beginning of their path, their choice actually seems like it was a pretty reasonable one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they had people to protect and they had an understanding of Lear's character that apparently Cordelia did not have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the relationship between sisters there is very interesting. I've always imagined Cordelia as like the oopsie child mm-hmm. who comes along later when the two siblings already have a really sh- strong bond. And then her par- she has different parents. I don't know if you have siblings, mm-hmm. but I have a sister who years younger than than I am. And it was like, she had like a different father than I had, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though he was the same man, because the experience that she had with him later in his life was completely unique to her. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a lot of that in Lear as well, that the relationship between the sisters is framed by their connection to each other, and then Cordelia as a kind of disruptor in their family. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the parallel story of Gloucester and Edgar and Edmund to parallel, you know, realizing that the parent is fallible, deciding the parent is fallible and making the parent fallible. I think it must be way more interesting to think about as somebody who is coming into adulthood of their own compared to we talked about Romeo and Juliet earlier, which was also (laughs) part of my high school education. Same. And I remember my peers struggling with it because it's hard to relate to people who are fictional versions of your age group whose decisions you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. For some, it was really hard to understand why they make these choices. Well, why do they make these choices? I wouldn't. Why are they saying that this is how 14-year-olds act? I don't act like that. Yeah. And it's it's harder to interrogate from the work from a distance, whereas with Lear, there's more like, well... I don't know what adulthood's like just yet. And I'm starting to see my parents for being human, fallible beings. Mm -hmm. But like, how would I deal with this? It's more hypothetical than trying to compare to lived reality. And the idea that you can manipulate a Mm -hmm. parent so effectively, I think is very 
interesting to consider when you're 17 or 18 year old and you're sort of still kind of testing out what you are bringing into these complex parent-child relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Gloucester goes down so fast. <laughs> like what honestly, what is wrong with mm -hmm. him? He has not like one moment of doubt. No. He's just like, yeah. Oh, yeah, he probably is trying to kill me. Yeah. Oh yeah, this child that I've never had an issue with before who just wants to look at his, you know, telescopes. Yep, I definitely believe the other one. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, that yeah, like that's a dynamic that a lot of kids feel like they bring into the play too. I think mm -hmm. that's the sense that like there's a golden child in every mm -hmm. family, and it, you never feel like you're you're the one. Yeah, and mm -hmm. on top of that, I think it's probably really fun to introduce teenagers to the fact that Shakespeare includes the line "Now God stand up for bastards," because. If it's your first experience with Shakespeare, you probably don't expect that sort of language inside of Shakespeare. No. <laughs> yeah, that, there's a couple of, of really good things in King Lear that you're like, okay, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew someone in college who read Titus Andronicus and was very upset that that was not his first introduction because he said, if Titus had been my first introduction and I knew how brutal and like full of action... Shakespeare could be, I would have been way more interested in Shakespeare earlier on in life if this had been introduced to me earlier. Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting to hear that like King Lear is doing that in the classroom today. I mean, Lear is a, an amazingly violent play from the very beginning and it's and everyone in it is so flawed mm -hmm. with the possible exception of Cordelia, I guess, but I don't know. I have some feelings about her too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I, I've been surprised. I wasn't sure it would be as effective as it was. I I moved towards it. This is this one's for the college board. I moved towards it because it's frequently cited as a source text mm. for the AP literature test. For years before that, I taught Henry the Fourth Part One because I loved that play. And I think that mm -hmm. play is such an interesting exploration of what does it mean to be a man? How do you be a man? There's different you know, different manifestations of masculinity and what is actually not toxic and, and good masculinity in that play. And, and students enjoyed it, but they often found that it wasn't a text that they gravitated towards for writing on the exam. So you win college board mm -hmm. to the test. <laughs> uh, have you had any other Shakespeare works that you've taught in the past that have been particular favorites? I think those are my top. I think Lear and Henry the Fourth Part One have been my top two. I you can't beat Falstaff as a character, mm -hmm. and, and Hal too. I mean, you know, he's just he's so engaging, and the things that happen in there are so goofy in that play. Yeah. <laughs> I will say my absolute least favorite, which I will never teach, is Othello. Mm -hmm. mm. It is popular in in the high school classroom, but I just feel like. I don't want to have to participate in the redemption of a Othello uh, through his suicide with a bunch of young people who are still not entirely sure that you should really be held responsible for crimes of passion, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, like young people can have some really complicated ideas about relationships and they tend to be far too forgiving of Othello, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier Henry IV Part One as insight into masculinity. Which of the plays 
especially the ones that you wrote about, do you find to be the most fascinating or frustrating, whatever feeling you felt, insight into femininity and womanhood and uh, from, from your year with Shakespeare? Oh, okay. That is a very interesting question. Because I don't think that Shakespeare explores the idea of what it means to be a woman in the same way that he explores the idea of what it means to be a man. I think it's always at the edges. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe the Merry Wives of Windsor is his greatest exploration of, of what it means to be a woman, you know, because that's one of the plays where you see women working together not only reactively, but kind of proactively. And you really see the power of friendship in that play, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I will say is as much as I'm not sure that Shakespeare really is exploring the idea of what it means to be a woman, I think he finds female friendship to be more powerful and interesting than male friendship. Mm -hmm. Because you definitely see more female characters who have reliable female friends. Mm -hmm. You know, Rosaline, yeah, Polina, yeah. the Winter's Tale, who's such a good friend, Helena, Hermia, Beatrice, and Hero. So, so you see that there are women who are like kind of willing to go there and be there for their friends and stand up for their friends when male society is not willing to mm -hmm. stand up for them across a lot of plays. And I don't very often see that happening with male characters as much. I mean, can you? say truly that Hal and Falstaff is an equal mm -mm. friendship. It's it's not. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> I guess mm -mm. like uh the two gentlemen of Verona, I guess they have a good friendship. Mm -hmm. They're so dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. But I think that Shakespeare sees friendship as a tool that people who are kind of marginalized and sidelined can use to hold on to their power. And that's something that I mm -hmm. like a lot. But I don't know that he explores in the same way the idea of what it means to be a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also is giving me the thought, what are female friendships in Shakespeare? Because you're right, the cousin trope is so common between like Rosalind and Celia and Beatrice and Hero. And then at the opposite side, you have like some sad moments where it's like Gertrude doesn't look, uh, look out for Ophelia. And that's tragic for both of them and especially Ophelia. So it's a question, what is womanhood in these plays? So it's also percolating in me too. You know, another kind of great friendship, although it's somewhat class stratified, is between Desdemona and her maid Amelia. Mm -hmm. And I think of this line in Othello, I don't remember it word for word, but she says, you know, men eat us. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, they eat us for their meat. And I thought that that was such an interesting line to hear in Shakespeare because if you are thinking, okay, this is a male playwright writing about women in, you know, in the 17th century when there's not a lot of sort of sense of women's rights yet, that's such a clear understanding of the fragility of women's position in society that they mm -hmm. really recognize how vulnerable they are to male desire. Mm -hmm. And it, I thought it was really interesting to see that moment mm -hmm. there where they recognize so clearly and they have only each other to try to work through that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to start wrapping up. One, because I'm like, oh, so many thoughts. <laughs> yeah. But is there anything 
that you are working on right now that you want to share with our listeners or where can they find your work if they are interested after listening to this episode? Well, I would love it if everyone would buy my book, None But Witches. <laughs> the mm -hmm. title comes from a comedy of errors, actually, where Antiphilus is like, we need to get out of here because none but witches do inhabit this city. And I thought that's exactly kind of how Shakespeare's women are. They're all secretly witches on the inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can purchase it directly from my publisher, Three Mile Harbor, or on Amazon, or small press distribution, which is a great source for small press books. And if you really love Shakespeare's women, then I want to give a shout out to my friends Dana Patterson and VC McCabe, who also have books about Shakespeare's women coming out this year. It's a big year for Shakespeare's mm -hmm. women. So Dana's book just came out. It is called Oh Lady Speak Again. And she is going through Shakespeare's women with a Mormon lens. Mm. And then VC's book isn't out yet. Hers is Erasures of Ophelia. So she has a lot of erasure poetry in hers. And I am working on a new project that has nothing to do with Shakespeare. It is a collection of poems in which Marie Antoinette operates as a kind of imaginary friend figure. She, uh, who is helping me think about the coming ecological catastrophe that we are probably headed towards, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, um, in the same way that the French Revolution was a disaster that the Bourbon monarchs brought upon themselves, a world-ending disaster for them. Like, we are kind of operating in the same way that now we all live like we're Marie Antoinette and we are going to have our own reckoning as well, probably. But that's not available yet, so you have to look out for it. Will do. Yeah, that sounds super fascinating. And I love that just after we talked about Shakespeare's depictions of friendship, you used your time to support your friends. That was incredible. Elizabeth, it has been such a joy to talk to you yes. today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. This is from Henry IV, Part One, Act Five, Scene One, spoken by Worcester. He calls us rebels, traitors, and will scourge with haughty arms this hateful name in us. <laughs>